providing real solutions for real industry challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplugged, the talk of the title industry. Well, Chuck, thanks for joining us. Uh, Americans have obviously been paying attention to what's happening in Ukraine. We're winding down COVID. We have quite a bit of inflation A lot of stuff going on here, but uh, we also have a new director at the CFPB who has now been in there six months. What changes have there been at the Bureau as to the direction and the policy from the Craninger directorship and maybe what remains the same? Brian, thank you very much. And yes, there are so many things going on at once. Uh, As the old phrase goes, it's like having bees live in your head. Yeah. With the advent of the Biden administration, we knew there was going to be a new director. The seal of law case that had been decided by the Supreme Court enabled the president to remove the CFPB director at will. And so um, we knew there was going to be somebody new. And for about six months, acting director Maggio was there. He had been assistant director under uh, Director Craninger, And of course, she resigned. She left the bureau. And so he ran the bureau for a few months. And a lot of that, why it was extended was because, well, there was sort of a political problem. The nominee, Rohit Chopra, was a one of the commissioners at the FTC, and uh, someone else left the FTC if he had left to go ahead and become the director of the bureau, it would have created a Republican majority at the FTC. And so they had to, first of all, replace the other person and then replace director Chopra at the FTC. So it dragged it out for a few months longer than uh, certainly the Biden administration, or I think uh, director Chopra would have liked. But you know, under uh, acting director Maggio, he very firmly and clearly announced when uh, he came into uh, the acting directorship, that there were two solid goals in 2021 for the CFPB. One, racial equity. And this, of course, is an overriding goal of the Biden administration and part of the, the platform. The other was to ensure that consumers are not being taken advantage of in light of the financial distress they may have uh, experienced as a result of COVID. Those were his two priorities, and uh, he carried through on those priorities. Director Chopra came in uh, again about a little more than six months ago, and he had been at the Bureau uh, when he was in his 20s and, uh, and then went to the FTC and now is back at the Bureau as director. When he was at the FTC, He often said that the FTC, he thought, did very good work. And the FTC is very much an enforcement unit. That is one of the overriding um, priorities at the FTC. But one of his criticisms of the FTC was, you know, we just don't find people enough money to make these penalties seem worthwhile and to stop the bad action. And, you know, that comment... I think, perked up the ears of a lot of people. And when he was in his interviews with the Senate, questions were asked very directly about that quote. But I would say that uh, with the change in the directorship, we are entering a uh, new directorship where the actions of the Bureau, and I have been using the word muscular, it's not just that there is a change 
and attitude at the Bureau so much. And much of this is a reflection, uh, I think, of the personality of Director Chopra from his own words. And we'll talk about some of that uh, as we discuss this here, that he really wants to make the Bureau a strong enforcement unit. And he sees or believes that perhaps uh, during acting Director Mulvaney and under Director Craninger, it didn't do all that it could do, perhaps even under Director Cordray. So we see a very different attitude with Director Chopra. And we had what was uh, sometimes loosely referred to as the Mulvaney Doctrine when acting Director Mulvaney was there. And the, the Bureau had been criticized during the uh, Cordray years as uh, seeking regulation through enforcement. That is, you really didn't know what the regulation was until you were already brought up on charges. Acting Director Mulvaney said, no, we're going to do it the other way. Uh, we're going to make it real clear what the rules are. If somebody breaks them, we're going to jump on them. But that being said, we're going to go the other way and we're going to make it very clear what we expect in terms of regulation. He also, uh, under Director Craninger, put together advisory opinions. And Director Craninger was very much uh, behind this. And back in the days when HUD had jurisdiction uh, over RESPA, back in the 90s, HUD used to occasionally do advisory opinions. Now, the value of some of those advisory opinions later on may have uh, fallen into uh, disfavor, but the advisory opinions that Director Craninger saw as a, an advantage for industry so that you could send into the Bureau, what is your planning on doing, how you plan on doing it, what do they think? And you could get an advisory opinion, which would protect you against um, action by the Bureau or by any federal regulatory body uh, that may have jurisdiction over the issue that is set forth in the advisory opinion. Those advisory opinions are probably going to go away uh, under uh, Director Chopra. Um, we have seen the acting general counsel at the Bureau made comments that thought they were confusing. And a lot of consumer groups don't like the advisory opinions. So I think that those will probably start to go away. I think that is, um, uh, again, somewhat telling that the Bureau is starting to really sort of circle their wagons. And Director Chopra has very directly and clearly encouraged state attorney general actions uh, under the laws that are enforced by the CFPB, the Dodd-Frank legislation provides for that. He sees the state AGs as local eyes and ears. And also, too, we have seen a proposal by the Bureau to allow citizens to submit proposals for rulemaking. This is uh, something brand new, but uh, something that, again, Director Chopra has talked about in the past. And that proposal is now outstanding. That would be a very different thing uh, to have rulemaking not come out of the regulatory body at the CFPB and again from people outside the industry. But he wants consumers to be able to directly come forward and discuss the problems and the issues that they have. One of the things that at the Bureau from its beginning, educate, enforce, and study. Those are the three things that the Bureau is charged with under Dodd-Frank, and to educate the populace as to uh, what they're getting into. Uh, know before you owe was uh, one of the catchphrases. To enforce laws and regulations, but also to study the industry. And we have seen several things 
since Director Chopra has arrived in regard to studies of the industry. One thing that uh, was um, rolled out here in the early part of the year was a request for information under the Chopra directorship from the big tech companies, from Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, PayPal, and Square were the first ones who received the request to provide information as to, quote, their business plans and practices. And the quote from Director Chopra in the request was that these groups were, quote, eagerly expanding their empires to gain greater control and insight into our spending habits. That's a pretty bold statement. Yeah. And very different from certainly what we've heard even under Director Cordray. He's concerned about data harvesting and monetization of data harvesting and access restriction and user choice. Those were also set forth in that request. And the other request that came out in January was uh, in regard to consumer complaint response by the big three credit bureaus. And in the request, and most of these, Director Chopra puts his name on. That is different from what has gone on in the past where typically things like this come from the bureau and not from the director, but he signs these. And in the uh, request for information, the CFBB released report that relief and response of complaints to the big three credit uh, bureaus was less than 2% of the complaints filed. That was set forth in the CFPB's request. The consumers had filed over 700,000 complaints with the Bureau as to credit issues between January of 2020 and September of 2021. That his, again, he set forth that the big three used template complaint responses, that they stopped responding, if they suspected third-party involvement, that is, if someone was seeking credit advice and that third party was assisting them, uh, and often provided no outcomes to consumers. You may have uh, filed your complaint, but you may have never heard whatever happened. And the quote, again, under Director Chopra's name, was that America's credit reporting oligopoly has little incentive to treat consumers fairly. Again, pretty bold, pretty strong statement. Yeah. So we have a very, very different mood from a director who is very, very serious about what he thinks is important. What about redlining? You know, we've talked about this in the past. It seems like it's taken on a different definition. Can you maybe talk about, you know, what's going on there in terms of redlining? I mean, this is something for many of us, you heard about in the 1960s and 70s, right? And and thought this was taken care of, but maybe touch on that and what's going on uh, with redlining. Sure. Redlining became a priority of the Trump administration uh, and under the, well, both Mulvaney and Kraninger directorships. So it's not new in regard to uh, Director Chopra's uh, administration here. And we go back a few years, there was a settlement actually the Department of Justice, not with the CFPB, with a community bank in the Indianapolis uh, area. And uh, the reason it was the Department of Justice was because the, the lending institution was literally too small to come under jurisdiction of the CFPB. But in that settlement, and then in a recent settlement with Trustmark Bank, 
which involved the Bureau, the Department of Justice, and the OCC. Trustmark's a national bank. They're headquartered in Jackson, Mississippi. But the issue had to do with about 25 branches in the Memphis metro. And it had to do it for the period 2014 to 2018. So this isn't something that just happened yesterday. These are things that, that as far as the Bureau, the OCC was concerned, who had done the initial investigation, by the way, that uh, this had been going on in the Memphis area with the Trustmark branches. And the allegations talked about that the Memphis MSA is about 50% minority, that is to say, Black and Hispanic, Latino. But Trustmark only had four of their 25 branches in those communities, and it assigned no mortgage loan officers to those branches. So no walk-in or reach-out to minority uh, mortgage lending. And in the settlement with Trustmark, the Bureau discussed, and this has been discussed in other redlining cases, uh, and we'll talk about Tom Stone in a second, but the Bureau will look at, quote, peer groups of lenders. Now, peer groups of lenders are determined by certain factual scenarios set forth by the Bureau. But when the peer group is determined, the names of those peers are not necessarily provided by the Bureau. They are quite often retained by the Bureau. So what the Bureau said was that peer lenders in the Memphis area generated two and a half times more mortgage loan applications in minority communities than Trustmark. The Bureau relies heavily on the data that they have gathered and that they continue to gather and utilize that data to make determinations in regard to the actual actions of the party that's being investigated. And it's very difficult, I think, that if you're in one of these investigations to dispute peer lenders because you don't necessarily know who they are. But the determinations in the settlement with Trustmark was that Trustmark had avoided having adequate branches in minority communities. It had avoided assigning loan officers to majority Black and Hispanic communities. It failed to monitor its fair lending compliance and that it discouraged applicants and prospective applicants. And the term prospective applicants is a very broad-based definition under ECOA, but it discouraged applicants and prospective applicants in majority Black and Hispanic communities. And so the settlement from last October was that Trustmark will invest $3.85 million via a loan subsidy program in minority communities, which would include closing cost assistance, down payment assistance, and payment of mortgage insurance premiums, that it would open a new lending office in a majority Black and Hispanic neighborhood and fund at least $200,000 a year in targeted advertising, take immediate steps to improve its fair lending requirements, and pay a $5 million civil penalty to CFPB. Again, a lot of this is driven by data. I think that there are certain things, obviously, where Trustmark had branches or didn't have branches. Well, that seems to be an indisputable fact. But the other case that is still ongoing and has been going on for some time is out of Chicago, and it's the Townstone case. And the Townstone case is interesting because the Townstone case involves a non-bank mortgage lender. It's the first time that a redlining complaint has been brought against a non-bank mortgage lender. And the allegations included the company engaged in acts or practices discouraged, again, prospective applicants 
And much of the litigation that can be seen in the public record has to do with, well, who are prospective applicants? Is it anybody? Which you could argue that anybody is a prospective applicant, or is it somebody who's actually looking for a mortgage loan? Are they the limited definition of prospective applicants? But that Townstone had discouraged prospective applicants living in African-American neighborhoods from applying to Townstone for a mortgage loan. Back in October of 2020, Townstone moved for dismissal based on the scope of liability created by the expansion of ECOA to include prospective applicants, that it's unreasonable and unworkable because we don't know who these people are. And Townstone's president had a radio talk show early in the morning, I think on Sunday mornings in Chicago, and that he had made comments that perhaps might be viewed as being uncomplimentary in regard to certain neighborhoods in Chicago. The argument, again, by Townstone is the radio show is protected under First Amendment, under free speech, and that the Bureau wanted to impose a demographic hiring quota on Townstone, which was a relatively small mortgage banking entity, and that was an expansion of ACOA. CFPB filed an amended complaint in response to that, adding the owner of Townstone in regard to an allegation of bank fraud. So redlining is certainly a priority of the Bureau. They are serious about it, and they are willing to use and quite often are bringing some of their actions based off data they have gathered that through their various reporting requirements and reporting requirements that lenders, that bank lenders have to the OCC, under CRA and other laws, that they utilize this information to review the actions and conduct of lenders. And I think that for those of us in the title and settlement space, something which we need to think about, because it's like, well, how does this really affect us? I mean, we're title and settlement. We will, we will close a loan for anybody. We don't care. We don't redline. We don't do anything like that. But I think that when you're doing your social media and uh, marketing, that you need to look at it. I think that uh, this is a very heightened issue. It's a heightened issue with consumers. And uh, take a look at what you have on your webpage. Do you have pictures of your staff? Does your staff look like the community you serve? And do you have adequate uh, information on your webpage or uh, as far as any links you may have to particular aspects of the community, especially Hispanic Latino, uh, where English may be a second language? So these are things that we all have to think about. And lenders now, because of this heightened scrutiny about redlining, are starting to push down and ask those questions other title and settlement providers. Or they simply have someone go to that web page or that Facebook page and see what's up there. Facebook pages are great things. They can also be uh, double-edged swords here because if you've got employees who on their personal Facebook page may post things that, let's just say, might not be in the best interest of the business. That can be your problem too. And so there has to be scrutiny about what is posted, what is set forth on the web page, and simply to make your social media look far more like your community, which is a good thing. 
consumers are more interested in this. They look at your web page and take a look. It's like, well, do I see anybody there that looks like me? Um, if I do, it's like, well, I think that may be a place I want to go. Yeah, this is common sense. <laughs> right? I mean, what it comes down to. I mean, and you just kind of have to wake up to things that maybe you didn't think of a few years ago, right? I mean, you just, hey, let's put up a website. And exactly. And, you know, and the MBA rolled out uh, data here a few months ago uh, in which they said that all, repeat the word is all the growth in the housing industry for the next 20 years will come through essentially minority communities. Yeah. Yep. And so, yeah, this is this is good business to do this. Yeah, no question. Want to switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about competition. And the headlines in competition came from, of all things, the the meat packing, the meat processing industry. When the Biden administration said, "Hey, we're going to put a bunch of money behind this to make this much more competitive." Now, this is not the only industry that they have focused on. Talk about, you know, the housing market, uh, the real estate market. How does that initiative, uh, you know, going back to last summer, this was an executive order about promoting competition all across the country. How does that play into some of these initiatives you've touched on here at the Bureau? Well, I think it does very much. And yes, that executive order on promoting competition in the American economy that was rolled out last July is an expansive order. It directs certain parts of the federal government that are under the direct authority of the executive branch to do certain things. And then for those branches of government that may not be under direct authority of the executive branch, that encourages them to do certain things. And it's a hugely expansive executive order. And it addresses enforcement and rulemaking in nine federal departments, bureaus, and commissions. And some of the things that are discussed in it, that uh, the rate of new business formation in the United States has dropped almost 50% since the 1970s. And it encourages federal agencies to challenge also prior bad mergers that to go back in to mergers that may have been approved by their uh, by the authority of those uh, departments, bureaus, or commissions, and go back and take a second look and decide of whether or not they should be unwound. That's a pretty big uh, enchilada to be laying out there yeah. to squeeze all that toothpaste back into the tube. It directly pushed the CFPB to vigorously seek enforcement against UDAP. And UDAP is a fairly broad term. It is defined as to what constitutes UDAP, but the Bureau has utilized UDAP in many ways to somewhat expand their authority. For example, early on, Dodd-Frank did not cover automobile dealers. They were specifically carved out from Dodd-Frank as being under the jurisdiction of uh, the Bureau. But the Bureau, during the Cordray directorship, did have jurisdiction over lending entities that may be affiliated with automobile dealers. And so utilizing UDAP arguments, the Bureau came in sort of the back door. And while they do not regulate automobile dealers, they certainly regulate the lending that goes on that quite often is done through or in conjunction with the dealership. Title insurance, as we know, 
is state regulated. That is very clear. It's a state regulated industry. Settlement and closing is under the jurisdiction of the Bureau. So if you are, say, here in Ohio, you're a title agent, you issue title insurance policies, and you do closings. As to the aspect of issuing the insurance, you are under the jurisdiction of the Department of Insurance, the state of Ohio. As to the settlement and closing, you are under the jurisdiction of the CFPB. And what we just had here in January was a request for information by the CFPB. And that request for information was, in a nutshell, on what was referred to as junk fees. And there's a wide range of things that are in this request for information. Things like resort fees that are charged in hotels, ancillary fees that are charged on bank accounts, uh, stop payment charges, things like that. And so the Bureau asked or requested information on an initiative that, as they put it, and to quote them, would save Americans billions in junk fees. This uh, new fee economy distorts our free market system by concealing the true price of products from the competitive process. That is a quote from Director Chopra in this RFI. And they are seeking information from consumers, from consumer advocates, small businesses, academics, and others. The submissions all have to be in by the end of this month, March, March 31st. In that request, there is language that includes us. That is to say the title insurance industry. And some quotes from the request. Priced into most mortgages are thousands of dollars in application fees and closing costs, which few people are well positioned to shop on. Again, that is a quote from the RFI. Another quote, though, which I think should perk up the ears of everyone in our industry, and it certainly has at Ulta, that advocates and reporters have noted that many closing costs, like title insurance, may not always be subject to standard or appropriate competitive forces. Again, that is a quote from this RFI. And I'll add, too, that as we get into issues of mortgage delinquency, Many people in the title industry are very much involved in uh, default work and uh, doing work uh, in regard to delinquency. And one of the quotes there was, quote, a plethora of fees related to mortgage delinquency, that those needed to be addressed. And it includes, quote, new title fees. So the Bureau, and the Bureau has for some time, informally, and sometimes formally said, well, you know, Title insurance is not regulated by the state. Sorry, I'm sorry, not regulated by the Bureau. That real estate commissions are not regulated by the Bureau. There's a number of things that are not regulated by the Bureau. But if there is a fee charged on a settlement statement, it certainly can be questioned by the Bureau under a UDAP argument. And this is something that, again, our industry is aware of. Again, Alta is uh, very much involved in this in regard to a response. And I think that in many cases, uh, we should be able to resolve this. But everything that can be done by a title agent to create transparency about title insurance, and Lord knows Alta has spent years, we at FNF have a huge variety of aids and services through our lead site and other uh, opportunities that we have 
at FNF to help title agents explain title insurance to consumers. So it's all there. I think it's very important that we do that as an industry and have real transparency. And one thing, which I think um, is a, an easy thing to do, is that in many cases, the consumers are going to buy in regard to an owner's policy, an enhanced policy as versus a standard policy. In many states, the enhanced policy costs a bit more than the standard policy. We need to probably do a better job in our industry to clearly explain to the consumer what they're getting when they're getting an enhanced policy. And again, those materials, Alta's got those materials, at FNF, we've got those materials, easy thing to do. But just so the consumer understands that if they're gonna pay 10% more, 25% more, that yeah, they're getting a, a better coverage. And if they decide that they really don't want that, even though it may call for it in the contract, that they can waive that and go back to the standard policy. I think that's a very simple thing for us to do. Uh, we get so caught up quite often in the speed of settlement. And again, not wanting to add yet another disclosure. But I think it's something that we probably need to do in light of Director Chopra's comments, because again, this RFI came out with his name on the bottom of it, that we need to provide real clarity to consumers so that if the Bureau comes knocking, we can say, well, look, we do our job here. It is competitive as far as competition allows, because in many states we have filed rates, we have promulgated rates, the price is the price. But that being said, the consumers understand what they're getting. But this is one of the first times that title insurance has been directly mentioned in an RFI by the Bureau. And to my mind, the fact that it's mentioned in an RFI that involves junk fees well, I, I won't say I was insulted, but I was taken back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That'll get your attention, right? I mean, just when we thought, hey, things go back to normal post-COVID, <laughs> not so fast. There's all sorts of stuff to, out there to worry about, right? I mean, it's uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that, you know, our industry and again, Alta is working on uh, response. Um, certainly the Mortgage Bankers Association. Uh, is working on a uh, much broader response because there's a large number of things in there that affect them, the American Bankers Association, other groups, to address what are these charges, why are they there, what are the disclosures, things of that nature, so the consumer knows what they're getting. But um, again, I think going back to our original you know, sort of title of this uh, podcast, that it's, you know, it's, it's a new direction with the Bureau and Director Chopra, again, you know, he's taking on uh, the credit bureaus. He's taking on uh, the uh, the large payment platforms. He's not afraid to go after whoever he thinks is someone that he wants to know more about. So I think we're going to see more of that from uh, this bureau here in uh, uh, at least uh, throughout the uh, uh, remainder of uh, his directorship and perhaps beyond because, you know, that data gathering is very powerful when there are enforcement actions later on. Well, Chuck, a rich download of information there and uh, lots to consider. We appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you very much. And uh, again, uh, we hope everything else works out <laughs> surrounding uh, <laughs> what goes on in the world today. Uh, but uh, 
again, uh, you know, in our industry, I do think we just have to be mindful of this RFI that uh, rolled out. Uh, stay close to Alta, stay close to your state land title associations, uh, and stay close to uh, your uh, elected uh, representatives too, should this be something that uh, uh, bubbles up a little farther than we may fear. If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email fnfeducation at fnf.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.